Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who has toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hello, thanks for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. If I haven't told you recently, I feel so grateful to you all for listening. Making a podcast, unless you're a really big name or have a media company behind you like a newspaper or a radio station, really is a labour of love. In my case, there's no kickbacks or ads or money for an editor or a person to do my social media. It's just me. And today, it literally is just me. I was listening to the podcast of a dear friend, Amanda Kendall, of the Thoughtful Travel podcast the other day, and she was discussing how she travels, which, as you might imagine from the name of her podcast, is Thoughtfully. Amanda's a bit of a free spirit, and she says she likes to leave some things to chance and some open spaces in her itinerary. If Amanda's a thoughtful traveller, then I'm an obsessive one. And today I thought I'd talk to you about how I travel. I'd also love to hear about how you travel, so please do go to my very neglected Extra Virgin Food and Travel Facebook page and let me know. So, we have established that I am not a free spirit when it comes to travel. And this is why. Travelling is so very important to me that I don't want to leave anything to chance. Living in Australia, it's also very expensive to travel and it takes a long time to get anywhere. So it's a big investment financially and emotionally and actually physically as well some of the time. Travel for me is like a 360 degree experience that starts the moment you walk out the door with your suitcase and getting to your destination is part of that. So I hate the idea of being uncomfortable. I hate long layovers. I hate the idea of being ripped off, of staying in some overrated, over-touristed town or arriving to find the only accommodation I can get is some dump in the dodgy end of town because I haven't booked. And yes, there is a bit of the control freak in my personality, I have to admit. By the way, I occasionally travel on a famil, the trip that's been organised by a tourism board or operator if I have a commission to write a travel story for a publication. And in this case, I'm okay with surrendering control. I know that they want to show me the best and for me to take away a positive impression of their place or the product that they're promoting. But when it's my own trip, it's a different story. So this is how it goes. Obviously, the first step is choosing where and how long I want to go for. I'm a Europhile and so Europe is usually top of my list. Although in the last couple of years, pre-COVID, I've also been to Cambodia, South Africa, New Zealand, Thailand and Indonesia. When I go to Europe, I'll always include Italy. One, because I love it. And two, because I want to practice my Italian. I have a rule, though, that when I do go back to Italy, and it's one of the the very few countries I do make frequent return visits to, that I also have to do a country that I haven't been to before. So, for example, our last trip to Italy included a side trip to Slovenia. Before that, 
it was Hungary. The trip before that was Bosnia-Herzegovina and Croatia, actually. And the trip before that was Spain. For my upcoming trip in September, I'm not following my own rules this time. I have been to France before, but the issue is that I'm actually running out of European countries that I haven't been to, except for the ones that are really close to Russia, which is a place I don't really want to go near right now, or a couple of the Scandinavian countries. And while I'd love to see those, Norway in particular, they're expensive countries, And I also, with the unsettled weather in Australia this year, I'm really looking forward to warmer weather where I go. The other thing I'm trying to do is to rein in my usual over-enthusiasm, trying to see too much. Three weeks is my usual length of a holiday when I'm doing a long haul. I think if I stayed in one place or two places for a while, I could probably do longer. But living out of a suitcase and going from place to place, getting on trains and planes and buses etc. Three weeks is about my limit. So when to go? I'm no longer tied down to school holidays which is lucky because it's often the most expensive time of year to travel. So I'll usually choose an off-peak time. September if you can arrange it around school holidays if you live in Australia is a great time I find to travel both for the north and southern hemisphere. In the north, depending on where you go, it can still be warm enough to swim. While in the southern hemisphere, it's not yet really, really hot because it's spring. It's quite a lovely time to travel. And speaking of weather, while I do quite like traveling in winter and I have traveled in winter, it's not so practical when it comes to luggage because you need all those warm, heavy clothes. So one of the things I look at is the weather in the destination at the time I'm thinking of going. And it's not just about hot or cold weather either. I've spent time in Taiwan in typhoon season, which wasn't pleasant, and 10 days in Vietnam during rainy season when every photo from that trip I have, I'm wearing a purple plastic poncho and looking miserable. So once I've decided on a destination, I'll get out Google Maps to get a general idea of size and distance. And I refer to Google Maps a lot during my travel planning. I tend to prefer to fly into one city or region and out of the other rather than backtracking to get back to where I arrived. And I want to travel in a logical direction geographically. So it might be from north to south or east to west or vice versa. So I'll work out a really rough itinerary. And my absolute favourite tool for doing this is Rome to Rio. It's a site you can literally plug in your starting point wherever it is in the world and your finishing point and it will tell you all the ways that you can get there whether it's by plane by bus uh, it tells you how long it'll take it tells you how many train changes you might need or the cost of a flight and sometimes using this I'll find out that my plans are just not practical something that might look quite close on a map actually turns out to be quite difficult to get to I also use TripAdvisor a lot to research places, but probably not in the way it's meant to be used, and probably not in a way that the TripAdvisor people would like it to be used. I often use it to find places I want to avoid. I'm not really interested in following crowds or ticking off huge must-sees just for the sake of it. So if it rates highly on TripAdvisor, I'll often have a rethink. At the very least, I'll go to another site and kind of cross-check. I find that government tourist websites 
are pretty good as a starting point. So I'll always go and have a look there too to learn more about the different regions. And I also like to check up on events that might be on during the time I'm there, like little local festivals. It might actually change my travel plans. There might be something interesting on in some part of the country that I'm just intrigued by and decide to go there. I also have a lot of travel writer friends who I trust and I'll always source their intel. Sometimes I look at travel blogs, but there are really very few that I trust or align with, so I'm generally pretty sceptical. The exception is blogs that are written by people who live in those places and know them well. Honestly, word of mouth is one of the best ways to find out about places and asking friends who have similar kind of travel goals are a good idea. Facebook is great for this. I find that friends really love to share special places that they found on their travels. My love is for quirky travel, for second cities, for unusual and interesting places. Like I've said before, I, I'm not really into the big things and I've often found them disappointing. Things that you've read about or seen pictures of all your life and you go and there's just a sense of, is this it? It's a bit like the Mona Lisa, if anybody's been to, the, to see the Mona Lisa. What a disappointment that was. Part of that, I think, is that the experience of seeing these these iconic sites is that they're usually shared with thousands of people and there are people elbowing you out of the way and people trying to take photographs and lots of noise and it's impossible to just stay still and appreciate the beauty and that takes the shine off it for me a bit. When looking for the quirky, I like sites like Atlas Obscura or Atlas Obscura. I'm not sure how they pronounce it. It has articles about kind of kooky places and experiences that you can do all over the world. By the way, I'll put links to some of my favourite sites and tools on the Extra Virgin webpage. So go check that out if you're interested. Right, so now I have a general idea of where I want to go within a country and a rough idea of what I want to see and do there. I'll now look up flights. Now, I have a confession to make, and this may alienate some of you. I'm sorry about that. But as I mentioned, for me, the trip starts when I walk out the door. And long plane trips are part of that when you live in Australia. Here's another rule that I have made up for my travel. If it's longer than 10 hours, I'll go business class. I'm really fortunate that my husband travels a lot for work, so he often has a lot of frequent flyer points we can use. For example, for our up and coming trip, we've used points to fly business class as far as Singapore and back, but we could only afford for one of us to continue on business class. And my husband wasn't all that keen about flying by himself in economy. So I found a great deal on business class on Turkish airlines from Singapore to Venice and back from Paris to Singapore. Now, I haven't flown Turkish airlines before, but I have heard very good things. And I got a PR release in my email box the other day saying that Turkish Airlines business class was rated at number four in the world. So we'll see. I will report back. Using frequent flyer points, in my experience, requires persistence and creativity. Airlines don't make it easy for you to use your frequent flyer points. So you need to think outside the box sometimes, as I have done with this getting to Singapore 
thing. It's a bit of a pain because it means we have to go through immigration, get our bags, check back into another airline. But ultimately, it was worth it. We got a pretty good deal on Turkish Airlines. They had a special. so. But I tried many different combinations to get us to Europe and it was just impossible. There weren't many flights on Singapore Airlines using our frequent flyer points. So just persist. Think about other cities. And this brings me to a tip. It's often worth playing around with different combinations of arrival points. For example, although ultimately one of our main destinations is Rome, to fly into Rome was much more expensive than flying to Venice. But it's only about a two-hour train trip from Venice and we saved hundreds by doing that. The same with flying out of London. We were going to visit some friends in London. However, it was much more expensive to fly out of London than it was to Paris. So we've actually arranged now our friends are going to come and meet us in Italy, which is quite nice. I quite like Armando to search for flights. I'm pretty sure that like most of the, these travel sites, it gets a commission from certain airlines, so it will naturally promote those first. So I will always go to the airline's own website too. Here's another tip for you. Sign up for frequent flyer programs for airlines, even if you don't think you're going to fly that particular airline, because often then you'll be on their newsletter and you'll get notification of, of specials. I, like most people, I choose my airline based on price or whether we have any frequent fly points on that particular airline, but also the length of the flight. I do not have the patience for long stopovers, particularly when they're not long enough to actually go through customs and go and do something, but you just have to sit around the airport. Oof. So I'll try to to choose a flight that has a short stopover. The other thing I try to do is to choose a flight that gets me at the destination in the early evening. And that way you don't have the whole day feeling jet lagged, trying to fight against going to sleep. And you can more quickly kind of get into the time zone of the place that you're in. Having two plane nerds in the house too, I will actually look at the type of plane used on that route. It's something they they always ask me. There are differences in planes that airlines use. Some of them are older. Some have lie flat beds. Some don't. Some have bigger seat pitches in economy. Seeker is a great site where you can plug in a flight number and it will tell you what aircraft is used and even show you the best seats as well as the ones to avoid, like those last seats that don't recline at all. Speaking of seats, if I'm travelling economy, I'll always get an aisle seat because I like to get up a lot when I'm flying. A trick I found quite successful when travelling with my husband, and this is only routes that are not super busy, we'll book an aisle seat and a window seat in the same row because in my experience, airlines tend to fill the middle seat last And please, if you know differently, tell me because I'm really quite interested. But we've often ended up with this middle seat spare, which is useful. Another thing, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have found that upgrades are increasingly rare. I've only had an economy to business class upgrade once in the last couple of decades, and that was on my honeymoon. 
I know people are still writing all those articles about how to score a business class upgrade and telling you to, to dress nicely and ask politely at check-in and that gives us all hope but these days there are a lot of people who are going to be upgraded before us plebs. They include platinum and gold frequent flyers and people who've paid the full economy fare which is quite rare for most of us to do unless you're booking last minute or it's a paid work trip and you need that flexibility. Then increasingly, if economy is booked out, they might open bookings to buy an upgrade. This is your chance if you really want to upgrade. However, they're not cheap. I did recently get an upgrade on a short domestic flight, though, for $80, which was nice, but honestly, it was a three-hour flight. It, It made little difference. As I said, if you work in the airlines and you know any different, please let me know. And also let us into any tips or tricks if there are ways to get an upgrade. Best airlines I've been on in no particular order, Etihad, Emirates, Qatar and Singapore Airlines. Of them, I think Qatar had the best food. It was really amazing, kind of meze plates of deliciousness. And here's another tip, actually. The vegetarian meals are usually better than the meat meals on flights. And you always get served first, so you can eat your meal and if you want to, go back off to sleep while everybody else is still waiting. So, accommodation. I don't need expensive accommodation, but I do need interesting accommodation. My exception is if it's just one night, say for a stopover. Don't forget that even if you don't have a lot of frequent fly points, you can often book a hotel for just one night with them. And I'll do this if I'm having a stopover. Like everybody else, I do tend to do a lot of Airbnbs these days, but I mix it up with one or two more more expensive and unique stays. So, for example, I've stayed in a luxury yurt, I've stayed in a 13th century abbey. I've stayed in castles and I've stayed in a cave hotel. Generally, to find accommodation, I'll literally start by just Googling accommodation in whatever city or or country it is. I'll go to Airbnb and do a search. And I'll actually use Google Maps because you can focus in and do a search for accommodation using Google Maps. And I like this because you can actually see where the accommodation is exactly in relation to everything else. If I'm being a real control freak, I'll even go to Google Earth and I'll have a look at what's around the accommodation. You can, with Google Earth, you can literally walk down the nearby streets and have a look around. You can see what shops there are. You can see how far away things are because Photographs only ever show one perspective and a place that says that it's near the ocean might actually have a freeway between it and the ocean. So my itineraries are always extremely complex because as I've said, I just try to do too much. When you're coming from the other side of the world, you have a limited time. You don't know when you're going to do it all again. You kind of want to squeeze things in. I know that there's this trend at the moment for slow travel but I figure I'm spreading my, my money around and supporting lots of different tourist businesses by travelling around a bit more. That's how I justify it to myself anyway. So I used to print everything out and actually carry a folder 
a big fat folder with all my accommodation bookings and train tickets. But these days I use TripIt. If you don't know TripIt, I cannot recommend it enough. It's a free online organiser and it creates an itinerary for you. So you sign up and then each time you make a booking and you get a confirmation in your email, you just forward it to plans at tripit.com. And TripIt files it in the correct spot in your itinerary. And it will also include information like the address and contact details and the confirmation number and often even a map. And it's a brilliant way to keep it all together. It also lets you share the trip with a co-planner. So if somebody else is, is also booking for the trip too, it will all go to one place. The only downside that I found is that Airbnb doesn't seem to work with it and you have to manually enter any Airbnb bookings. But that's that's a minor glitch. Getting around. So I am so lucky when I travel with my husband that he's a fearless driver, whereas I absolutely freak out at the idea of driving on the other side of the road. So, but he loves it and so generally we'll hire a car for at least some some part of the trip. I found that there isn't much to pick between the big name car hire companies. They all tend to have pretty much the same prices and the same cars. And if you do find somewhere really cheap before you book, I really advise searching for reviews on that company. I was recently looking and I found this company that was hundreds of dollars cheaper than the budgets and the Hertz. And I was about to book it because it was such a great deal. And I went and did a search and I just found complaint after complaint. And one of the things that was pointed out was the fact that the contract that car company offered had all kinds of exclusion, you know, even even if you paid the extra to to be covered for damage, it didn't include windscreen damage or tire damage. So if you got a flat tire or if a stone hit your windscreen, you were liable to pay that and according to their contract they could pretty much charge you whatever they liked for that so however having said that on our last trip to Italy we had a car it was a Fiat 500 so a small car and coincidentally what I drive at home for 10 days and it was midwinter so it was very very off season and that 10 days cost us 70 euros now we kept waiting for, or for to be told that it was a mistake or to receive extra charges after we got home or something, but nothing. It really was seven euros a day. The car hire that I'm looking at at the moment for our next trip is about 10 times that. So that was pretty much a one-off and I don't normally recommend cheap car hire companies. Here, however, is a tip for your car hire. You may know this already, but many credit card companies will cover your excess if you have an accident. So when you go to rent a car, they'll always ask you if you want to pay extra to, to cover that excess. I, I don't know what the technical term for it is. It's, that, it's often quite expensive proportionally, but you don't have to take it. So of course you need to have paid with that credit card and not all credit card companies do it so before you book a car call your credit card company and ask them whether they offer this the last time I took a long distance bus in Australia I was probably 15 
the idea actually appalls me. But of course, I'm such a hypocrite because when I go to other countries, I quite like it. Buses can actually be a really good way to get around. It was it was actually the easiest and quickest option for us to travel from Italy to Slovenia. We took a Flix bus. It was just a couple of hours, but it was very civilised. It had a bathroom and Wi-Fi and really comfortable airline type seat. I love train travel in other countries. Love, love, love it. There is nothing like being in a foreign station and hearing those announcements of all the different places that the trains are going. My tip for train travel is to look on the rail website because often they have specials for bookings in advance. Or like, for example, in Japan, they have cheaper tickets that are just for tourists. I will always book tickets in advance if it's an option rather than just turning up because getting onto a crowded train with a a big suitcase trying to find a seat and trying to keep an eye on that suitcase is a nightmare. So money. I take so little cash when I travel these days that I no longer worry about who gives the best exchange rates. When I first started travelling as an adult, we had traveller's checks. I don't know if you guys remember traveller's checks, but I can't even remember how they work. I think you went into a bank to exchange them for cash, but there might have also been bureau de change where you could exchange them for a fee. In the past, I've used those cash cards too, but, you know, there's a big markup on them. And from memory, you also get slugged exchange fees with whatever you have left over. So honestly, I find that my debit card, I have an ING one that refunds any foreign transaction fees is the best way to go. And of course, I have a credit card for backup or for big purchases. I like the fact that with cards, you have all of your transactions documented. So if anything goes wrong, you know, you have evidence. And most countries have ATMs these days. And speaking of money, that's where being a control freak pays off. Having everything prepaid that I can before I leave home means I know exactly how much I have to spend on my trip. All right, packing. I am the worst person to talk about packing because honestly, whether it's a weekend or a month, I am a shocking packer and have always been. I never learn. There is, however, a podcast I did a while back with the fabulous Nikki Parkinson of Styling You blog who is a packing guru, and she gives some great tips. This is how packing goes for me. I start with the best intentions. I lay out outfits on the bed. I start packing them in my suitcase. And then I find that I've got all this extra room, and I start to panic about what I might have left out, what I might need, what I might feel like wearing. And so I start to fill in all the spaces. And then... I realise I've got too much and I pull it all out and I start again and then I start to panic and I just throw it all back in the suitcase and close it up and I end up with this big confused mess and of course I never wear half of the things that I've packed. One thing to remember is that there are such things as laundromats or laundries all over the world and while of course you don't want to spend all your holiday washing clothes, it's easy enough to do once in a while. And in fact, it can be an interesting experience. We once arrived in Lecce in southern Italy by train and we had suitcases full of dirty clothes. So I stopped and asked somebody in the street in my best Italian where we might find a laundromat. 
And within minutes, there was like this conference on the street as locals debated where the nearest was and how to give us directions there. And eventually, this lovely old man told us to jump in his car and he'd drive us. I don't normally get in the car of strangers, but it was just one of those situations where it felt fine. So we did. And on the way, he decided to take us for a driving tour of the city and to point out all the, the major sites, which was fantastic because we got this great overview and were able the next day to know where we wanted to go and roughly where things were. In Phnom Penh in Cambodia, we were in the same situation. We'd been travelling around and we had a suitcase full of dirty clothes and we noticed a sign that said laundry in the street, a handwritten sign. So we gathered our laundry together and we followed this sign which took us down an alleyway to a house and a young boy came out of the house and he we gave him the clothes and he counted them and put them in a basket which was tied to a rope that went through a window and somebody inside pulled up the basket of clothes and he gave us a kind of receipt and told us to come back that evening. So we came back to beautifully laundered and pressed clothes and it cost us a couple of dollars. Anyway, I have zero packing tips to give. Sorry. Actually, the only tip I can give is don't be like me. What I can share is the type of luggage I have. So I have the hard shell Samsonite cases in a variety of sizes so that depending on how long I'm going to be away for, I'll choose one of them. I like suitcases with wheels and they must be multi-directional because I want them to be able to go backward and forward and and also to kind of wheel it along beside you to not have to just push it or pull it because, you know, you get a bit tired I have to say for the price, though, that I don't find Samsonite is all it's cracked up to be. I don't know that I'd go next time for a a big branded case over, you know, a generic one. I know I've been pretty tough on them, but I've had to replace the wheels several times as well as the locking mechanism on one of them. I do have the perfect carry-on, though. It's a Delcy brand, and it's sort of a bowling bag-shaped vinyl and leather bag it's quite stylish looking and it's perfect for an overnight trip or for a plane trip and it fits into the overhead locker perfectly i don't know that they make this exact model anymore but it's a great brand and it's been really sturdy and hard wearing i also have a leather handbag it's like an open bag type shape and i often take that with me too and I'll slip it into the bag. So I kind of double bag, and that saves me having to take a handbag and a carry-on bag. Nikki also mentions her perfect carry-on in the podcast that I mentioned, which I think is episode 40. So what do I take on a plane? For long-haul flights, I will take one or even two novels because I really like reading and I'm a fast reader. I will watch a movie or two maybe, but most of the time I like to spend reading a book. I will always take noise-cancelling headphones. They're a must, especially if you've been unlucky enough to draw a seat near a baby. I pack multiple pens for filling in landing cards, etc. Lip balm and moisturiser because planes are so dry. And I will always take a pair of compression socks. So mine go right over the knees. They are not particularly fashion forward, I have to say. But 
they stop your feet swelling and they cut the risk of deep vein thrombosis. I also take a woolen wrap because it gets cold on planes and that can act as an extra blanket. And I take a water bottle because I drink a lot of water and I'll ask the stewards to fill it with bottled water and that way I don't have to keep bothering them for water and also I'm not using as much plastic in those ridiculous little plastic bottles. Unless I'm flying business class, I'll take my toothbrush and toothpaste and sometimes I'll take my laptop and charger and I think that's about it. Disasters. Okay, sometimes things do go pear-shaped and for me it usually involves a plane. Between us, I am a nervous plane traveller. I always have been. It's not actually the being on the plane, I'm not afraid we're going to crash or anything like that. It's all the stuff before. It's the bag checks and the lines and the do I, don't I remove my belt or my shoes? Do I have to throw away my water or do I need to pack my makeup into a clear plastic bag? And having to keep track of the documentation you know, my passport, my tickets, it all just gives me anxiety. And my way of dealing with anxiety is generally to put off thinking about it. So for that reason, I'll look like I'm really super relaxed about getting to the airport. I'm always like, oh, we've got heaps of time. Don't worry, because I don't want to be there. I don't want to sit around the airport for longer than I have to. And I'm actually subconsciously trying to put off the moment that all this process is going to start. Anyway, because of this, I've missed a plane three times. The first was kind of a biggie. It was a flight from London to Australia and a kind friend had driven me through the horrendous traffic to Heathrow and then I missed my flight. And she'd gone by then and I was too embarrassed to tell her that I'd missed my flight because once again, I'd been too lax about what time she should pick me up because I didn't want to sit around the airport. So it was totally my fault. And so I slunk back on a train without telling her and managed to rebook to get on a flight the next day, thank goodness. The second time we were flying from Bari in Italy to Seville and I misread the time on the schedule. So it was one of those cheap flights, I think it was EasyJet or Ryanair or something. So once we missed it, that was it. There was no flights for the rest of the week. And there there were three of us. We ended up buying tickets to Milan because there were flights out the next day from there to Seville. So we ended up staying at a hotel at Milan airport to get that early flight out the next morning. It was a pretty expensive mistake. We lost the tickets for three of us, had to buy new tickets for three of us and the hotel. The third was a monumental stuff up by me again. I was in Florence with a friend and we were about to catch a train to Rome airport to meet my husband who was flying in from Australia. The three of us were flying to Split in Croatia and from there we were taking a ferry to the island of Kortula. That was the plan. Only I'd read our flight departure time incorrectly and thought we were leaving at 15.15 rather than 13.15. So my friend and I were just casually starting to get ready, packing and we're going to take the short walk to the train station in Florence to get the train for Rome, where we'd have to change trains for the airport. When I looked at the itinerary again and realised what I'd done, so we literally threw everything in our bags, and, and of course we were staying on the top floor of an old palazzo that had no lift, as most don't in Florence. 
So we had to drag our suitcases down these flights of stairs, banging all the way, running to the train station. We managed to get on a train that was just leaving for Rome. When we got to Rome, we ran and found the Airport Express train, jumped on. I was trying to call my husband all this time, but he wasn't answering. We got to Rome Airport and, of course, the check-in was the furthest reaches of the airport. So again, we were running through the airport with our bags trying to make this plane and got there to be told that the gate was closed. There was no one. Everybody had boarded and the gate was closed. So my husband had waited for us. He was the last one on the plane, the the lady at the gate told us, but he just he gave up and he got on the plane knowing that we'd sorted out and it wasn't worth him losing his flight and the, the cost of having to get another flight and lose the accommodation that we'd booked. So my friend and I retreated to a quiet part of the airport. I had a bit of a cry, I have to admit, and we tried to figure out what the hell we were going to do as there were no more flights to split that day. So eventually we found a flight to Dubrovnik that was going to leave shortly and we hurriedly booked that, got in and got on that flight. We booked a B&B near the port because we knew that we were going to have to stay overnight because there were no more ferries to Korshila that day. So we booked a B&B near the port so we'd be ready to go early the next morning. When I got to Dubrovnik, I had a lovely message from my husband with a photo of him on a plane with two empty seats beside him. We ended up having a lovely time, despite the fact we'd missed one day of our holiday. So despite not being a free spirit and the occasional hiccup, I have always still had the most wonderful, adventurous trips. I've been to extraordinary places off the beaten track and met incredible people on the way. How about you? Are you a planner like me or are you more of a free spirit like my friend Amanda? I'd love to hear about how you travel, so hop on the Facebook page and share. You can also listen to my only other solo podcast about five destinations that changed my life in episode 85. And I'll report back to you after my September trip and let you know how all this planning went. Well, I hope this hasn't been too much me in this episode. Thank you for staying with me and for your company as always. And wherever you are in the world, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews and more on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until we meet again, bon voyage and bon appétit.